0: I'm Jeff Cohen. Dubbed one of the hardest working singers in Jewish music today, Sam Glazer has toured the world sharing words of inspiration through song. Along the way, he also found his path to Jewish observance, and he's here today to share the story of how he found his way both in music and in Judaism. Sam, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos.
1: Great to be here. Thanks, Jeff.
0: I appreciate you taking the time. We, of course, are going to explore your music. But first, let's get to know you a little bit. So give me a sense of like
1: where you were born and raised. So born and raised in L.A., California. Been here all my life, other than a stint at Berklee College of Music in Boston. And then uh, University of Colorado pretty much graduated and opened a recording studio right away and uh, set out my sale in the uh, music industry.
0: So let's go. let's go back to... In terms of your childhood, give me a sense of where your family was holding from a religious perspective when you were like a young child.
1: So we were a, uh, I would call us an active conservative family in that we grew up loving Judaism. We had a deep connection with Israel. Uh, I have three younger brothers and all four of us had our bar mitzvahs at the Kotel in, in Jerusalem, in addition to our synagogue, which was Sinai Temple in Westwood. We didn't keep kosher, we didn't keep Shabbos, but most Friday nights we would do Kiddish, an English version of Eish Chayel. We'd get a blessing from our dad, and of course, you know, Shalom Aleichem. And we do a lot of singing. So the association with uh, Judaism was never burdensome. It was just kind of natural part of life and uh, loving.
0: Right. So that's more than a lot of conservative or reformed people, I would say, were doing when they were growing up. Like maybe you'd go to shul once or twice a year, but certainly not eating kosher and not having like the Friday night meals. So I think you were ahead of the game even as a child.
1: Right. But like I said, we didn't keep kosher. And I call ourselves active conservative Jews because at least we were aware that Judaism was important, that heritage was something that you took seriously. Um, my dad would remind us as kids, even though we had no idea what he was talking about, that we had to marry Jewish girls. And our family simchas, I should also say, were beautiful celebrations. We had a few Orthodox relatives in New York, namely some uncles, Uncle Moshe and Uncle Shloima, that would come out. And I loved them, and they were real treasures. The patriarchs in our family, after my grandpa died just before I was born, um, I'm named after him, he was Sam Glazer. So it was just this, we had this connection to the old world, to the Romanian Glazers up in Marmarish, near Siget, where uh, the association was positive. You know, being in LA, we had no other connection with Orthodox Jews ever. So it was a positive connection.
0: That's what I was going to ask you. Given you had some family members who were Orthodox, but you didn't have it around you in LA, did you have a perspective on, okay, I'm practicing at this level that you called like active conservative, that there was another level and it's something you could explore? You didn't really think about that as a child. You just, this is what my family did and I'm good with it.
1: Never even an option. Didn't think of it for a minute. Just didn't even know that there was a, a ceiling on my observance level. I just thought... You know, I had a general idea that there were certain things we did and didn't do in terms of like eating pork I knew was wrong and, you know, things like that. But but that was really the extent of it. And I think the conservative movement does a lot of work to make sure that their constituents don't wander around feeling guilty for the things they're not doing. And they applaud <laughs> the things that people are doing. Which is a
0: double-edged sword because they're they're not feeling guilty, but they're missing out on A whole other direction they could go if they got more and more into it.
1: Absolutely, and if you look at the libraries and a lot of the conservative synagogues, they actively refrain from buying any books that might teach you that there are other directions one could pursue which is, I think, a tragedy and had a lot to do with my writing my book. Beautiful. And we're going to get to the book, of course.
0: I want to continue with your story as it's unfolding. So you mentioned the bar mitzvah in Israel. Sure. So for a lot of conservative folks or reformed, that's kind of where the Judaism ends. You have the bar mitzvah and it's like, thank you for participating in the religion, and that's going to be it as you enter high school. What was your experience post bar mitzvah?
1: I also fell into that post bar mitzvah. You know, you're essentially done with your Jewish education. There was an expectation that the overachievers would go to something called Hebrew High School, which I did. I survived for about a year before they decided that maybe it was better if uh, Sam Glazer not be here anymore.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's a story for another time.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, I, I was always kind of a rebel or disruptive if there was an activity that I thought was lame. I made sure that somebody knew about it. So I did not participate so much, but that year actually got me to Israel when I was 15 again for the LA Ulpan, which was also a really amazing nine weeks in uh, Kfar Meir Shvea up by Zikron Yaakov, um, working the land, learning Hebrew, living in Israeli life, and uh, that was formative. Really an important amazing summer. I went to public schools my whole life and my uh, first year in high school was really hard on me. I didn't feel like I fit in and was just searching for a clique that I could call my own. And thank God I sang so I had the choir. But I aspired to be friends with everyone and it wasn't quite working out very well. Then to go to Israel for that next summer really did give me friendships and it, it helped me realize that... I could really flourish in a Jewish milieu and was really comfortable there. So uh, it was really reaffirming and uh, also gave me that deeper connection to Israel
0: at what point along your childhood were you thinking music is going to have some kind of role in my life? Did you think it would be a profession or did you think this is something i am going to be doing on the side when you were growing up?
1: I was a rock star in my head, probably from the <laughs> age of three. And I'm not exaggerating. Beatles 65 came out. I was born in 62. I was also really into the Rolling Stones, various other bands. And uh, I, that's just what I wanted to do.
0: And how did your family feel about this? Like, you hear stories when a kid says, I'm going to be a performer or an athlete, an artist. The parents think, uh-oh, I'm going to be supporting this kid for the rest of our lives. So were they supportive or telling you to explore this kind of thing?
1: Well, both my parents are musicians, and my mom was a music major and a pianist and singer. and My dad's a trumpet player. So it was just kind of normal. <laughs> It was in the family. It was, it was welcome. Of course, my father realized that that was just a pipe dream and I was going to go into the garment industry just like him. <laughs> and he was setting up a position for me, you know, all my life. I actually did work for him for five years. So I agree that most parents look at their children who want to be musicians and say, what kind of job is that for a nice Jewish child?
0: But you wanted to pursue it. So did that play into where you went to college and what you were studying?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I uh, started at Berklee College of Music in Boston. I graduated early in that I was a year younger than everybody in my grade. So I was a 17-year-old running around Boston with my skateboard, loving music school, taking classes for my heroes in the jazz world. I started playing jazz in high school and uh, and that was really an exciting time. But I did want a regular four-year college experience and I wound up transferring to Boulder, Colorado not only because they had great mountains, they also had a a pretty good music program in addition to a business program. So I did the double major thing.
0: Very nice. So then where are you holding post-college in terms of what you're pursuing professionally and where you're at in your Judaism?
1: Post-college, I, uh, as I said, I opened a recording studio and uh, started trying to get my bands that I was in at the time record deals. And uh, not much was going on Jewishly until a scholarship application arrived in my mailbox to go study at Ash Torah in Jerusalem. So uh, I had a girlfriend at the time who was raised a little more observant than I was, and she really encouraged me to go. And I went and I loved it. I spent, it was a six week program, but I stayed an additional three months pretty much Hanukkah through Pesach. And it just transformed that part of the holiday cycle and my uh, outlook on uh, what was possible in Yiddishkeit. And it was a lofty goal for a musician to eventually become Shomer Shabbat, but I saw how beautiful Shabbat was and uh, realized that this is something I wanted for myself. All expenses paid sounded really good being that I was a (laughs) fledgling musician. And uh, living in the old city of Jerusalem, you know, that was, uh, that was a pretty unbeatable combination.
0: So what, what were those conversations like when you came back? You, you had a girlfriend who convinced you to go. You had family. And you said you came back thinking, maybe I want to be observant. So what happens to that relationship? And how do your parents feel about this?
1: I was really open-hearted and interested. And I was drinking it in, but I was drinking it in like an anthropologist. But something definitely changes for a Jew. You realize subconsciously that this is you. This is your people. This is your story. And uh, I think one thing that made a profound impact on me was many of my friends growing up in the Brentwood Pacific Palisades area of Los Angeles intermarrying. Friends of mine were starting to settle down with their girlfriends and almost none of them were Jewish. My two best friends at the time married non-Jews and I was poignantly aware that was the end of the line. That that was not a good thing for our people. So my parents didn't necessarily give us a Shomer Mitzvot life, but we knew that Judaism was of crucial importance. So when I got to Israel and I saw families that were amazing with tons of kids and love and kids sitting around a table and singing and, you know, really a, a clarity that this is the, their life, you know, this is their, their life and the length of their days. This is a transgenerational experience that leaves an impact. Especially on a young guy who's, you know, in his 20s and knowing, God willing, they'll get married some at some point, you know, it was like, oh, I see that and I want that. And what does it take to get that?
0: Of course, I can see that while you're in Israel and you're just like fully immersed in this life and you're getting your neshama is getting turned on, you're getting excited is one thing. But then there comes a point where the Israel trip ends and you go back to the life you had before. And how do you how do you keep that alive in your regular life? I stayed
1: after my program was over. It was not immediate, but slowly but surely it became uh, less of an anthropological search and um, more of a um, this is something I want in my life and I, I want to take it with me and I want to hold on to it. I was reading books by Arya Kaplan, Ezreal Tauber, of course, Zelig Pliskin, and uh, I bought those books, so I took them with me. I had a library, but the tidal wave of Western influence when you get back to wherever you come from is such, especially with no, you know, I lived in the, at the beach in Playa del Rey at the time, there was no shul around the corner to stop in and talk to the rabbis. So those nascent moments as a newly minted Baal Teshuvah, um, you're like a sandcastle in the shore break. And LA just wiped me right out. <laughs> But I started getting some Shabbat invitations to newly orthodox friends that had moved into our shtetl here in Pico Robertson. That was my
0: lifeline. So you had the lifeline and you're getting some of these experiences, but it sounds like the way you said you kind of got like wiped out by LA that you're not yet saying, you know what, I'm going all in on this. Like you're getting little pieces here and there, you're getting the Shabbos invites, but you're not at that point of, I'm going all in on this lifestyle.
1: Correct, because All In meant a few things. Number one, it would have been career suicide because I was playing gigs on Friday and Saturday nights and traveling extensively. I was traveling for my dad's business around the world. I was doing gigs and those Shabbat nights, to say no to my band on those nights would have been uh, the end of the band, essentially. Those are the nights when people want to go out and party. That's the nights when you're hired, essentially. Um, And one of my gigs was uh, with a a Motown band. I was playing keyboards and singing backup vocals. And I started calling in a sub for Friday night because I recognized, you know, I don't really want to work on Friday nights anymore. This was several years after being back in L.A. In other words, it had to fester for a while. This feeling like I know I need to get a little more committed. I'm missing that. Oh, that's right. It's Shabbat
0: we've interviewed a couple of other musicians and this question of, well, Friday night and Saturday are like major performing slots. Right. And like you just use this phrase like career suicide to not be playing there. But they get to a point in their career, either through how their observance has grown or their confidence as a musician, that they turn down those
1: gigs and find their career flourishes in other ways that they never would have expected. Exactly right. So truly in Yiddishkeit with uh, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, our amazing god behind you, nudging you, cheering for you. I really believe anything is possible. And of course, I didn't know this at the time, but my career of just trying to become a rock star was going to morph into uh, making Jewish music. So that hadn't happened yet at this point. But I do remember I was uh, on a tour to a, a variety of synagogues as the soloist for a jazz Shabbat service that a composer named Jose Bowen had written. And it was a great gig. It was a big band, choir, and me as the soloist. And it was sort of bringing out this Jewish music side of me because I could read Hebrew because I went to conservative Hebrew school and I loved the music. It was really fun stuff. But I remember at Wilshire Boulevard Temple, which is this gorgeous cathedral-like structure impressive building uh, downtown LA that I realized this is the last Shabbat I'm going to work. So how old are you at that time? Probably 26, 27, something like that. I realized that was it. I don't want to drive anymore. I don't want to accept a paycheck. I don't want to plug in my gear. Everything just was feeling wrong about it. And it was such a great gig. You know, everything was so right. Um, and I realized that what I needed to do was have my own destiny. In other words, not be beholden to anyone. I couldn't be on someone else's tour as a backup guy. I had to be the guy determining when the gigs were. Right. Then you can call the shots. Right. So, And I always wanted to call the shots.
0: <laughs> All right. So let's go into your music a little bit. So is, is it that in the early part of your career, in your early 20s, it wasn't necessarily Jewish music and that's what started to evolve as you became
1: more observant? Yeah, um, it was sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy in that I was getting more into my Judaism and actually doing something about it rather than just talking about it. So I started writing some Jewish music. I was asked to write a song for the Operation Exodus campaign in 1989 when the Iron Curtain was falling, and I was very into that cause, so I wrote the song Hineni, which... Uh, became sort of a hit for me, and I got asked to sing it for a group of 3,000 Jewish educators that next summer after I wrote it. I have thousands of songs, but only four of them were <laughs> Jewish. <laughs> and uh, I made a cassette of those four songs, and uh, I gave it out at that uh, gig that I had. It was for the CAGE conference, which is the Coalition for Advancement of Jewish Education. Um, it was at USC that summer. Um, so I sang that song, did a set of my various Jewish songs and a few cover tunes to fill out the set. Also, a guy named Craig Todman, who was a big shot, mostly in the conservative world, recorded that song. And uh, as that became known, I got asked to write music for other things. I also got invited back to Israel on a scholarship for uh, composers from around the world with the Center for Jewish Culture and Creativity. So that became a Jewish album. And uh, I had secular albums at the time that uh, that's where I thought I was gonna go. But the Jewish stuff was what was catching on, and I didn't have to perform on Shabbat. And it was the wellsprings of my soul, you know, these Pasukim I'd read some sentence in the tefillah and the prayers that would connect with me and like, whoa, I'm hearing a song for that. So I became a Jewish composer.
0: It's like you made this career pivot when your life was heading that direction and then you were getting your breaks in Jewish music. It seems like they kind of came together to tell you, I guess, this is what the next stage of my career is supposed to be.
1: Correct. Yeah. And the secular music, it was fun and exciting, but it was really thankless. It was really an uphill battle. It was very hard. It was, you know, I had to drag people to the clubs in order to have the clubs book me the following month. Right. (laughs) You know, unless you have 100 people there, they don't want to talk to you. And if you get your 100 friends to the first gig, who's going to show up to the second gig? They already heard you a month before. <laughs> so to start that snowball, it's so much work and publicity and flyers and and to instead be invited to uh, synagogues for Shabbatons to be counted upon as a Jewish leader when I didn't know my, you know, I didn't know much. <laughs> so I had to, and I didn't want to look like an idiot. You know, I had my pride, so I had to really invest. I already, thank God, was really well-trained as a chazan, because I took my bar mitzvah study very seriously. The cantor took me under his wing, the organist at our synagogue took me under his wing, and really made sure I could daven Friday night, Saturday, all the way through Musaf. I learned how to lane, I learned how to do the tropes for all the various megilots. I was one of these 13-year-old, I don't want to use the word prodigy, but I was really excited about all that stuff. (laughs) And I remember my mom telling me after my bar mitzvah, she said, Sam, if you continue to pursue anything you choose with so much enthusiasm, there's nothing you can't do.
0: Oh, that's what every mom
1: should be saying to their kid. Yeah. Really good mom advice.
0: So wait, let me ask you now in this mid late 20s time of your life. Yeah. You're seeing this pivot that's working for you to go into Jewish music. And you're also discovering Judaism personally, like on a deeper level. So where are you observant wise as your career is taking off?
1: Well, as I said, I was starting to inch into Shabbat. I did the baby step routine. Um, And for me, I'm way too, I don't know, controlled. I don't know. I had to reason everything out. Everything. It was like, I have to figure everything out, like every mitzvah I had to fight for. And Shabbat was definitely a one hour at a time. All right, I'm doing Friday night. That's going to have to do for now.
0: (laughs) And what's going on dating-wise? Because having this conservative background, but you're becoming more observant, are you now seeking out people that are already observant or maybe in the process of growing? Like, what are you looking for at this point?
1: I was just really enjoying being single in L.A. We could just leave it at that. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) I wasn't looking for anything in terms of religious woman, the woman I'm going to marry, make sure her skirt's long enough. No, that never occurred to me for a moment. I was just enjoying my life. I did, you know, mostly date Jewish girls just because, you know, I have an affinity for Jewish people, I guess. And, you know, that was just kind of the natural thing and wasn't necessarily looking for a wife. As a matter of fact, I feel like the word marriage wasn't really even in my vocabulary until I met my wife. But as I started getting a little more serious about Shabbat and uh, I met my wife, I was trying to lay the ground rules for what would be an observant lifestyle. Like I had to make sure that was okay with her before we went any further. I just remember one of our dates, like the third, fourth date, I'm like, this is really amazing. I love being with you. Is this something that's interesting? Because that's kind of where I want to wind up.
0: So how was she raised? Like, what was her background when you're having that conversation?
1: So she was raised in a uh, pretty secular upbringing and, uh, you know, a love of God and not much tradition, but she was open-minded and was willing to try it out. I had friends who had moved to the community. So I really believe the way to get into Shabbat is not to break out a fat text on how to keep shabbat (laughs) i've been in a smicha program now for three years pretty much learning Hilchot shabbos for most of that time the laws of shabbat i would not recommend anybody get into it that way that's something you do later on you just go to shabbat tables and that's what we did and as we were coming around and uh spending time in the neighborhood at one point i really wanted to walk to synagogue so we rented a shabbat place We had a one day a week room in an apartment. You know, I felt like I'm sort of closing the loop here. I'm learning about mitzvot and I'm doing the mitzvot. I'm learning to do. And that is the launch pad, which may be a good segue to my book because what I try to do in The Joy of Judaism, and the reason I took nine years to write that thing, is because I wanna encourage Jews to close the loop, to just be open-hearted, to let the wisdom of Torah enter their lives and their hearts, to find amazing role models in the friends and the rabbis and rebbitsons and whoever, and just try it and just see how it works for you. Because as I put it in the book, I feel like if you're only doing some of the stuff, it's like filling a helium balloon with helium, but you're poking holes in it as you're filling it up. It's never going to fill up, but if you close that loop, if you say, I'm in, whatever it takes, I may not understand everything, right? You're doing a Na, anishma we're going to do it, and then we'll understand, trusting that God has your back, there's some incredible launch that happens. Then you're like a hot air balloon, then you're like soaring to the heavens, so... I had that loop-closing experience right around that time. It took meeting my wife, it took getting a Shabbat apartment, it took saying, I'm not working on Shabbat, and that includes Saturday until there's three stars out. And still
0: your music career is taking off anyway as you're making these decisions. And we, we've been talking a lot about your music, but let's bring it to life and actually hear a couple of your tracks. So we we picked one, we picked one from your 2012 record, The Promise. The song's called Dancing in Jerusalem. So let's hear a, a clip from
1: there. Bring it. God will fulfill your heart's desire, take you to the place you want to go. Keep dreaming of the land of your history, and you'll walk in the streets before you know. On wings of eagles, they took to the sky, not sure how this magic carpet would fly. Then cries of joy and the first shalom, 50,000 Yemenites coming home. My heart is dancing in Jerusalem.
0: My heart is dancing in Jerusalem. How'd this one come about?
1: This was, uh, I was uh, amazed at the epic story of Israel in terms of Aliyah, people moving to Israel from around the world, and how that's a story that is not emphasized enough. How just about every country where Jews have lived has essentially opened their doors at some point and jews have left now most of that of course happened in 1948 when uh, israel was declared a state and all these arabic countries unleashed their jews but then we had the soviet union in uh, 89 90. ethiopian jews more recently and my heart dances in jerusalem i just spent uh, two weeks in israel i just got back last week my daughter our 22-year-old just had her first child. Mazel tov. So that's our first grandchild. And uh, obviously we were very excited. And uh, she moved to Petach Tikva. She married a great Israeli guy. Um, she's living the good life in the Holy Land. I'm so proud of her. Um, it's hard to be far away, but you know she's really doing great things there. And she moved near Tel Aviv. And so I was spending time in the third bedroom of her apartment, which we help pay for. <laughs> so it's essentially our bedroom, like we have a piece of the rock. <laughs> and, uh, and it was wonderful, but I really wanted to be in Jerusalem the whole time. That's what I really realized. I love being in Israel, but I really need to be in Jerusalem. My heart dances in Jerusalem. I walk the streets of Jerusalem, and I say hello to everyone. I want to hug everyone. You know, some of the women get a little upset by that, so I don't. Um, <laughs> but I really, there's just something about walking those streets and just the Kotel and the old city and the Shuk, the Arab quarter, you know, Shari Chesed, just the whole experience of being in that amazing space just does something to me.
0: And I'm actually not surprised given the love you have for Israel that's coming through loud and clear in the interview that you recorded a version of Hatikva. So let's hear that as well. All right. So I must admit that I played this for my wife and when she heard it, she said, wow, the opening of that song reminds me of the Mode or Erasure, which were two groups that she really liked. <laughs> Do you hear that when you listen to this?
1: Yeah, totally. I was actually commissioned to record it. I was, uh, there was a magazine, I don't know if it's still around still, it was a Jewish teen magazine called Baba Ganuz. <laughs> That's a good name. Yeah, and they were, you know, they had a several year run and they asked me to uh, write a cool Hatikva to be inserted in a CD. I, and I stayed up all night that was all done in one night that was an all-nighter I recorded my vocal over and over again you know just with the layers and the harmonies and all the keyboard parts and whatever that was a long night of doing a techno hatikva experience so let's talk a little bit
0: more about your music career what's like a really interesting venue you got to play or something that like really stands out as like a just a really amazing memory for you
1: you know, every gig is so different, it's really hard to pick one. At least until COVID, I've been doing 50 cities a year consistently um, since 1997. So every other weekend I go somewhere or other. The memorable bull gigs are the ones where something goes extremely wrong <laughs> or everything's perfect. One of those amazing perfect nights was uh, the LA Jewish Symphony decided to do a night of uh, my music. So it was all my compositions from beginning to end with full orchestra, with my band, with a 50-voice adult choir and a 70-voice kids choir. If you can imagine, like so many personnel involved and so much, it was so nerve-wracking, the preparations, the rehearsals. I remember being on the floor backstage like, I can't do this. I lost my voice (laughs) and the conductor's saying, Sam, get a grip. But, uh, you know, there's those really exciting moments. You know, I've sung the Dodgers National Anthem several times. Um, I've sung at the Staples Center, the Greek Theater, what was the Universal Amphitheater. Those really big gigs, obviously, they make a real... You never forget those. So with the music and the books... I have to believe you're also
0: involved in some Jewish causes, so there are a couple organizations that you spend the little free time that you have when you're not touring the world.
1: I am very involved with uh, my community at Aisha Torah here in L.A. I always kept that connection just as a hakarat hatov in gratitude for all that I was given. Uh, We have a lot of big Shabbat tables, Um, I'm involved with partners in Torah, Um, I was involved for about a decade with uh, Jewish Big Brothers. I'm involved with Chabad's around the world. Um, that's become a real home for me. Um, regardless where I'm performing, they always are welcoming me and often feeding me. <laughs> and uh, there's a, the Coalition for Advancement of Jewish Education is now called New Cage. I'm involved with them. I really go in all denominations. So I'm, I'm reformed, conservative, and orthodox in terms of the concerts and shabbatons that I do still pretty much equally spread. And so you have a new album in the works. I've heard from a lot of musicians that when they
0: were in the midst of COVID and the performances were kind of put on hold for a while that there was like a lot of writing of new music. So is that how you used your time also?
1: Yeah, it was a really creative time, but it was also a real tight time for my Parnassa, for my income, because of course all the gigs disappeared. And unfortunately, um, streaming and the advent of Spotify and Apple Music and all those essentially eliminated any income musicians get from their music. I'll repeat that again. Musicians have no income from their music unless you're Lady Gaga. You're selling zero Because even 10,000 listens amounts to zero. You can't even buy your friend a cup of coffee People love music and they listen to it all the time and anytime I bring this up to someone they're like in shock What do you mean? I thought I'm paying for music because I pay my $9.99 a month No musicians get nothing zero squat so that really put a dent in the whole Parnassa thing as well. So, yeah, my wife was looking at me to reinvent myself. And thankfully, I run a recording studio, and that was always one leg of my income. But, it, you know, with the great grace of the creator of the universe, I've had consistent clients in here. So, there's always been work to do for me. And, uh, and I'm, I'm so grateful for that. Um, but in the meantime, yeah, I've been recording like crazy because I've got so much material and more time on my hands. So I, in addition to doing this stuff for my clients, I have five albums in the works. Whoa, that is prolific. Five new albums. They're just all ready to go. I have a new Joy of Shabbat album. I have a Tick for the musical, which is a new musical I wrote for kids to appreciate Israel. I have Sam Glazer's Completely Klezmer Kabbalah Shabbat which is almost done. I'm mixing it right now. And then I have one that I started about five years ago and never released, which is called The Power of the Soul.
0: It sounds like a good game plan. And I want to ask you one final family question. Then we'd like to close our interviews with the lightning round. You get some super fast questions. But the last thing I want to ask you is, you know, you mentioned a daughter in Israel. Yes. There must have been a time when your kids were growing up where they started to have questions about, hey, mom and dad, you you weren't raised with this, but you're choosing... To raise us this way, how do they feel about the decision you made as a couple to raise an observant family when it's not really where you came from?
1: They are aware of uh, where we came from for sure, but they're not necessarily, I think, questioning it so much. In that, growing up in a Jewish household and having mostly Jewish friends in a Jewish neighborhood, and you know, my boys went to Yeshiva University. You know, they really had Yiddishkeit around them at all times. And then when they graduate college, it's up to them to integrate it into their lives as much as possible. And parents have to be hands off and just say, it's your life, run with it. And uh, you know, it's really interesting to see where where they're coming out. I'm confident that they're all gonna make the right decisions and uh, you know, and hopefully stick with it, or at least give us Jewish grandchildren. You know, that's what, that's what we fight for in this generation. Beautiful, so let's close now with our lightning
0: round. I'm gonna ask you a few Fast questions to end. Are you ready? Bring it. All right. So who is your favorite Jewish musician who's performing today? Besides yourself, of course.
1: My favorites right now are uh, Yishai Rebo, the Moshav Band, and uh, Yehuda Glantz. And I love so many musicians, and it's really hard to answer because I will exclude people. There's so much great Jewish music out there. But uh, those are three that I've been throwing on my speakers quite a bit.
0: Alright, so what's your favorite song to sing around the Shabbos table?
1: Around the Shabbos table, we tend to default to Rabbi Shlomo Karlbach melodies, as does most of the Jewish world, Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox, which I really love to see since I was a Talmud of Rabbi Shlomo Karlbach and got to accompany him for years. After I sliced the challah while there's those moments of silence, I tend to sing just because it's a nice three-part niggin and most people know it. And uh, some people feel like when I'm a guest at their Shabbat table that I'm not going to want to sing my own stuff. But I actually like seeing my own stuff. It gives me nachas when I'm seeing the table already knows it. and uh, uh-huh. So that does happen sometimes.
0: Got it. And how about some advice for parents when they see that at a young age, their child has some musical abilities? What's the best way to foster that?
1: Definitely nurture it from a young age. I find like uh, six or seven is a good time to start an instrument. Encourage them to join bands, choirs, anything that's available. And if there's nothing available, you have to be the proactive, obnoxious parent to insist that you're not only elementary school, but your local junior high and high school also have music programs there's got to be avenues for those people who love music to be able to express themselves and for those who don't even know that they love music sometimes it opens a whole new side of their brain so i think that's really crucial and uh if they're considering it professionally good luck (laughs)
0: so let me ask you a question about that to get to your level clearly you've done hundreds and hundreds of hours of practice so what would you say to a kid as he's growing up and he has these days where he's just not in the mood to play his instrument like he thinks he wants to do it but he's just not feeling it how do you break through that
1: um you need to put in at least a half hour a day and that half hour a day should be uh on exercises and the stuff you enjoy playing And eventually, I guarantee people that in two years, it will all be stuff you enjoy playing. You will enjoy the whole process. I have an adult friend who started playing guitar, Um, not necessarily a musical guy, but he loved music. And I gave him that two-year test. And I said, try it and just tell me how it works out, a half hour a day. And sure enough, in two years, he's playing the guitar. I mean, he's really playing all up and down the neck. And you know, it takes discipline, just like anything in life that you want takes time and discipline.
0: Sam, you are officially out of the lightning round. So I just want to say that our <laughs> listeners our listeners, can learn more about Sam Glazer's book, The Joy of Judaism, and of course, learn more about his music at samglazer.com. And I want to thank you for joining me today on Saturday to Shabbos.
1: Awesome, Jeff. So good to be here.
0: Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit tachlismedia.com, that's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard, or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at tachlismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen, thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.